We turn now to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, the chapter we read from earlier, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, that's page 1108, and we turn to verse 26. At the end of the verse it says this, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The whole verse reads, and when he had found him, that's Barnabas finding Saul, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, we have a, a record by uh, that godly man, Luke, and uh, he's describing for us the things our Lord Jesus Christ began to do and to teach until he was taken up into heaven. And addressing the same person, Theophilus, he takes it up again in the Acts of the Apostles, carries on where he left off, beginning again with the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, then gives us his full report of the progress of the gospel, reminding us the Lord Jesus had told his disciples before he ascended that the gospel must first be preached in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So when you read through the Acts of the Apostles, you find that's exactly the pattern and the outworking of the progress of the gospel. Now, when you come to this chapter, you find that the gospel has already reached Samaria, and then Caesarea in the high north on the, uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean coast of Israel. And then in this chapter, we read of it going to Antioch, so even further north into Syria. So there's this outworking of God's purpose through the apostles as they preached, enabled by the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Spirit in a measure they'd never known before Pentecost. And there was a great burst of spiritual activity and the gospel spread to the four corners of the earth ultimately. And still the work is going on in our day, reaching out with the message of grace to sinners in a state of bondage and darkness. They might come to the light of truth and salvation. This is the great need of the days in which we live, isn't it? That men and women and boys and girls might come to see their need of Jesus Christ, maybe convicted of their sins, realizing they've broken God's holy law, that they need a Savior who has honored that law and who has paid the penalty of that broken law. And such a Savior is Jesus Christ, who came to the world to save sinners. That was the express purpose which he came. God sent not his Son, we're told, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And we have the privilege of having the word of God to show these things to us and considering these things together this evening. Now, the house of Cornelius had been blessed at Caesarea as they come to understand the saving power of Jesus Christ. And here in Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire had been blessed through the gospel. And such was the remarkable success that news reached the mother church in Jerusalem and Barnabas was sent down to Antioch to see for himself what had been happening. And we're told that when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. But he did something else, something that's very easy to miss when you read this passage. He went to find Saul of Tarsus. He realized that Saul was the man 
who was going to be an instrument for good for this newly established church. So he went off to Tarsus, maybe he had to knock on lots of doors and walk down many streets to find him, but once he'd found him, he brought him over to Antioch, and there they remained for a year, working together, laboring shoulder to shoulder in the things of the gospel to establish this newly uh, called church into the kingdom and to show them the way of God more perfectly. And we're told it was here at Antioch that they are called Christians first. And I would imagine the term Christians wasn't intended as a compliment, probably a term of reproach. These people, they're followers of Christ. Just like the term Puritan or Methodist wasn't intended as a compliment, was it? Puritans, are they these people that spend too much time troubling about the small details? They want to live spotless, pure lives. What's the matter with them? And so they are termed Puritans. It was a pejorative term. And likewise, the Methodists, anybody who took the Bible seriously in the mid-1700s were called Methodists. Of course, they became associated as a denomination under John Wesley eventually. But likewise, it would appear Christians was a term of scorn and uh, reproach. But we come to the question, in fact, three questions. First of all, what is a Christian? It's a very basic question, very important question. Because to be wrong here means we're going to be wrong in everything else. If our religion is not the religion of the Holy Spirit, if it's not the true religion of Jesus Christ, then we're going to be wrong here and wrong everywhere else. We're going to be wrong for time and wrong for eternity. So it's a, a question of great moment, of great importance. Now before I answer the question, I want to deal with some of the mistakes that are made in answering this question. You see, what I'm trying to do here is to clear the ground first. When a person wants to erect a building, they may have to demolish whatever was on that site to begin with, clear away all the brambles and the thorns and the thistles, and then they can start to lay the foundations and build the superstructure. And that's what I've got to do here this evening, to first of all clear the ground, because it's possible to make many mistakes in answering this question. First of all, there are people who will come from a Muslim background and they will make the assumption that most people that live in Western countries are Christians. They talk about the Christian West. And there's a certain cultural Christian heritage, that's true to a certain degree, but of course they're greatly mistaken in assuming that everyone that lives in this country and has a, a white British background, for example, is a Christian. You ask the average person walking down the street tonight in Bedford of a white British background, ask them if they're Christians and they say, I have nothing to do with these things. It has nothing to do with me. So that's the first mistake. Then there are others who will assume because perhaps they have lived in a, a country where Roman Catholicism is the main practice of the people, perhaps Latin American countries or Eastern European countries and also where Greek Orthodox churches are established, they may assume, because they come from that culture and that background, that they are Christians, because in a certain sense they name the name of Christ. But that's a mistake. That's not what a Christian is in the sight of God, as explained to us in the Word of God. And it's interesting, isn't it, that even here in this country, there are many people who have some assumption about these things, and somehow in a vague kind of way imagine they're Christians. You may remember that in the more recent national censuses, I think 2001, 2011, 
particularly, it was a reminder to us, in fact, a, a surprise, how many people said they were Christians. In 2001, it was 70%, and just a few percent, percentage points lower in 2011. There's a kind of lingering idea, because there's been a Christian heritage in this country, that somehow people are Christians. And people even put that down on the census form. But that doesn't make a person a Christian, does it? Then there are others who will say, well, I was brought up in the National Church of England. I was baptized as a baby. Some drops of water were placed on my forehead in the shape of a cross. And uh, surely that makes me a Christian. And more than that, I was confirmed at the age of 12 or 13. That made me a fully-fledged member of the Church of England. But a person can do all that, and perhaps in their own way be quite sincere about it, but that doesn't make a person a Christian. Now, I'm coming a bit closer. A person can be baptized in a church like this, baptized by immersion, and perhaps believe that is the right mode of baptism, but that in itself doesn't make a person a Christian. You see, the problem is that in our hearts we think there's something I must do or some, some procedure I must go through to, if, to make me a Christian. And all these are man's own efforts. If it's just done, as it were, as a kind of ritual or ceremony, it's man's own efforts to make himself right with God. I remember reading of a minister of the gospel who had a neighbor who told him that some years before she'd been baptized in a, a Baptist church, she had a baptismal card with her name on it, and on that basis she was assured of going to heaven because she'd been baptized. But that in itself doesn't assure anyone in a biblical sense of going to heaven. But then I think of a young man who years ago, in giving his testimony, said this, that because his parents were Christians, he assumed he was going to heaven. And so he spent the services trying to go to sleep. But God intervened in that young man's life and awakened him and showed him his danger, showed him his folly and brought him to experience of salvation. It may be that tomorrow morning someone will say to you when you're at work or in some other context they may say to you, what did you do yesterday? And if you say, well I went to Providence Baptist Chapel, they might say, oh you're a Christian then. How would you respond to that question? So I'm trying to clear the ground to show you the mistakes and uh, the stumbling stones that people may have. Without coming to the word of God, we will become uh, dark and ignorant regarding these things. So let me answer the question for you, what is a Christian? And we need not go no further than this chapter because it bears all the features of what a real Christian is. And the first thing to say is this, that a Christian is a person who acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord. And you'll notice in verse 20, it speaks of those who came to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. There was this emphasis in proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is God's Son. He is the Master to whom we owe allegiance. We are to submit to him. We are to acknowledge him. And you may recall that this was a costly thing for many people in those days because Caesar was regarded as divine. They ought to acknowledge Caesar. And there were those who were put to death because they refused to do so. 
acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. Led by the Holy Spirit, they had come to this point of understanding and confession concerning Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Apostle Paul said concerning his ministry, writing to the Corinthians, he said, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. This is a summary of his ministry amongst the churches, preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's an essential part of preaching the word of God to show people that we have, we own allegiance to the Lord. We need to acknowledge him, to submit to the truth concerning ourselves and concerning him. Paul, writing to the Philippians, put it like this in chapter 2, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why God sent his Son into the world, that people might realize their need of Jesus and acknowledge him for who he is, the Son of God, he who is the Lord and Master. But sadly, left to ourselves in an unconverted state, we turn our backs on these things. Like it says in the book of Job, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What havoc sin has done, it's turned us into rebels. Instead of rebels by God's grace, we brought that point, if we are Christians, we brought that point of humble submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging him to be Lord. And secondly, a Christian is a person who has been blessed with a spirit of repentance. Notice what it says in verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, notice how it's phrased, repentance unto life. It's not a mere legal repentance. I better not do this because I might be judged. It's not a kind of uh, just notion about repentance. It's not a kind of light-hearted confession. It's a, a deep, heartfelt acknowledgement of our sinfulness before the Lord, that we've done those things that are displeasing to the Lord. We have disobeyed his holy law. And we are therefore rebels against him and liable to his judgment. But God turns people around, doesn't he? And uh, when a spirit of repentance is in the heart, then we acknowledge the Lord. As the hymn writer says, Come, let us to the Lord our God, with contrite hearts uh, return. For God is gracious, nor will leave the desolate to mourn. You remember the prodigal son? He's a classic example of repentance. The whole chapter, Luke 15, is on that same theme. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And you remember the prodigal son? He had all the blessings and benefits of home life, but he became very selfish and hard-hearted and turned his back upon the family home. He wanted his portion now, and so he went off with his full pockets to possibly Rome or Antioch. They were the bright lights in those days. He's going to have a good time. It all went horribly wrong, didn't it? It wasn't such a good time after all. And he was brought to a point of destitution. And then he started to think about all that he turned his back upon. Thought about all the good things that were there at home. And even remembered that the hired servants had bread enough and to spare. And here he was, perishing with hunger. 
and felt so hungry he could have eaten the pig's food. And then he came to this resolve, didn't he? I will arise now and go to my father. And I'll say unto my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And so he set off. It wasn't with a selfish motive. He was genuinely sorry. And so he went back home, wanting to put things right. Would he be received? Would he find a welcome? Well, the father was looking for him. And when he was a great way off, he saw him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and welcomed him home. And they brought forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger, token of his love to his son, his wayward, rebellious son. Now this is a picture for us. It's not just a, a, a pretty parable. It's a picture of what God does in people's hearts and lives, isn't it? Turning people around, changing their hearts. You see, repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. It's the hurt that leads to healing. And that is what happens, isn't it? That's what happened for these people here. It's also described, the end of verse 21, as those who turned unto the Lord. People have to be changed. Their heart has to be changed, and then their life is changed. And they turn to the Lord, heeding the call of God's word. Do you remember when Paul preached at Mars Hill near Athens, that he reminded them of the God who made this world. His approach was different to when he went to the synagogues, the people who knew the scriptures, but he dealt with them on the ground of creation. God was their maker to whom they uh, owed their lives. And you remember, he says to them this, God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. So there's that call of repentance. And when the call becomes effectual, the gift of repentance is received and people relent. People's hearts are broken. People acknowledge freely and willingly their sinfulness. They confess their sin before the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. This is the call of the word of God, isn't it? To heed the call to repentance, to be wise in time. They might be right for eternity. This is a real mark of a believer, a real mark of a Christian. They repent on account of their sin. But then there's something else that's very clear in this passage concerning what a Christian is, and that is, I've hinted at already, they become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So you notice belief and repentance are put in the same phrase, the same verse, because the two go together. When the word of God speaks of repentance, it's speaking about Believe in repentance, a faith that looks to Christ as well as repenting of sin, or as C.H. Spurgeon once put it, the tear of repentance glistens in the eye of faith. No one can look to Jesus Christ and see by faith his wounds, his sufferings, his precious shed blood, without feeling a sense of grief and sadness on account of their sin. You see, repentance and faith then go hand in hand. It's a believing repentance and a penitent faith. But perhaps I can be a bit more specific as to what faith really is. It's not something visionary. It's not something mystical. It's not something vague. It's something very specific and definite in the word of God. It involves the mind, the heart, and the will. With the mind, we have to be instructed in the truths of the gospel. 
Truth concerning ourselves and truth concerning the way of salvation. We need that. But of course we need more than just uh, these truths in our minds. It needs to affect our hearts. We need to be convicted of it. We need to feel it. We need to acknowledge it. We need to have a sense of love and attachment to the truth. But faith goes even further than that. It affects the will. The will is the part of us that makes choices. We're brought to that point to willingly choose the Lord Jesus Christ. Him that we despised and neglected before, we now willingly choose. As the psalmist said, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. This then is faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there are those of you tonight who testify of this, that you have heard the gospel preached. It may have been some of you years ago, but you heard the gospel preached. And as the gospel was proclaimed, faith came by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, so that you embrace the truth of Christ in the gospel. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, a remarkable account of this uh, Ethiopian Chancellor of the Exchequer, you might say. He had charge of all the treasure of Queen Candace, and he was searching, searching for the truth and searching for salvation. He was reading his Bible on the way back home from Jerusalem. He hadn't found what he wanted to find in Jerusalem. And there in the dusty desert of Gaza, he found Christ as Philip went and preached Jesus to him as the Son of God and the Lamb of God who laid down his life as sacrifice for sin. And before he was baptized, he was asked the simple question, If thou believest all thine heart, thou mayest. And his response was this, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Very simple in many ways, but deeply profound. And those two words, I believe, are very significant, aren't they? When a person gets to the point in their life where they're able to say that genuinely and sincerely, it's a belief that's more than just notion, it's belief that's more than just in the mind, it's belief that rests upon Christ, looks to Christ, trusts in Christ, I believe. Wonderful things have happened in your life if you're able to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because you will acknowledge freely your salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Furthermore, a Christian, I don't want to go too fast, but just to remind you, the Christian is a person who acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord, who repents of sin, and believes in Jesus Christ, but furthermore, a Christian is a person who has received the grace of God. To refer you again to verse 23, it says, when Barnabas came and had seen the grace of God, was glad. J.C. Ryle, the famous Anglican bishop of the Victorian era, used to say this, that grace that is not seen is no grace at all. When God works in a person's life and changes their heart and renews their will, it will then become evident in their conversation and their desires and their prayers and the way they conduct themselves in life. Grace is seen, and if it's not seen, then it's no grace at all. But he could see it. He could see the change that taken place in these people here at Antioch and rejoiced to see it. What is grace? Well, sometimes it's expressed in these terms, using the word grace as an acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace, isn't it? That 
we come to the Lord with our sin and we discover our sin has been imputed to him, to his account, to Christ. And he bare the consequence of that upon the cross and his righteousness, his grace is imparted to us. God's riches at Christ's expense. And furthermore, a Christian is a person who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the term Christian means. The Latin suffix I-A-N, at the end of the word Christ, simply means a follower. We read in the Bible of the Herodians. They were the followers of Herod's party. And here then, a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. How simply the Lord Jesus spoke to certain individuals follow me. Uh, John chapter 1 is particularly interesting at this point because we find there was a day when John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. One of them was Andrew, the other we presume was John. And when Jesus passed that way, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And both those two disciples left John the Baptist and followed Jesus Christ. And John wasn't offended by that because that's what he came to do, to point people to Christ, to make straight paths to him. And then we find that Andrew goes to find his brother, Simon Peter. And then the next day, Jesus goes to find Philip. And then Philip goes to find Nathaniel. And it's all pointing the same direction. They become followers of Jesus Christ, willingly now owing them their life to him, their salvation to him, and following the meek and lowly Jesus. And of course, another case regarding this is Levi, or Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. A publican, they were known for their extortion and excess, their dishonesty, their hardness of heart. And here he was, as far as he was concerned, it was just an ordinary day at the office, you might say, sitting at the receipt of custom. But the Lord Jesus had purposes of grace towards this man. And he went to him and simply said, follow me. Such was the, the power of that call that he rose up immediately and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may not be called to leave your employment to become a believer, but nevertheless, we have to be made willing to leave all those things behind that are dishonoring to the Lord, those things that belong to the old life, and to humbly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we notice that these believers here at Antioch were called to cleave to the Lord. This was the exhortation of Barnabas. Verse 23, he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they will cleave unto the Lord. An example of cleaving, and by the way, cleaving is one of those unusual English words that means two opposite things. It can mean to, if you cleave a log, you're splitting in two. But it can also mean to hold fast together. And that's the sense here, of course, to cleave to the Lord. It's like Eliezer, one of David's great men, who when he defended the field with his sword, he used such strength and determination that when the battle was over, they could hardly remove his fingers from the sword handle. And that's cleaving. And so it is here we are told to cleave unto the Lord. Now, this is God's own testimony of what a real Christian is. And therefore, you can test yourself by these things. And so, I arrive at the next question, briefly. Are you a Christian? You see, these things aren't here just to entertain us. They're here to show us the way, to point out 
the way of truth and grace. Are you a Christian? It deserves an honest answer, doesn't it? Are you a Christian in New Testament terms? When I was a Sunday school teacher, we used to sometimes sing this hymn, If Jesus should come to our meeting today to call out the Christians by name, oh, how we would listen to what he would say, how solemn the moments would seem. You just think about that. If you'd been alive at the time when Jesus Christ was here upon earth and he had a list of those who were his people, you would want to know whether you were on that list, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I hope you would. And here are the the indications then of what a Christian is. God has left these things for our instruction in his word. And by way of personal testimony, this is a question that troubled me very much. When I was in my late teens, came about in this way. One of my sisters started to go to a place of worship in Sussex where there were lots of young people, quite a large congregation. And after a few weeks, the minister came up to her and said, Are you a Christian? I don't know what she said. I don't think she was a Christian at that stage. He said to her, If you're not a Christian, then you're just helping to fill up the pews. And that shook her somewhat. And it shook me when I heard about it. And I couldn't get this question out of my mind. Are you a Christian? I knew, honestly, I wasn't. And it troubled me. And this sense of conviction went on and on until at last I found peace. First of all, through Psalm 23 and then other scriptures. So it's an important question. Now, how would you answer that question? If you were asked directly after this service, are you a Christian, what would you say? Could you honestly say yes? Or would you answer rather vaguely and say, I hope so? Now, sometimes people say, I hope so, because they're perhaps not assured whether they really are a Christian. They may be, but they're not sure. Other people perhaps may say, I hope so, just to deflect the pointedness of the question. How would you answer this question? Are you a Christian? And if you were to ask or answer the question in a vague kind of way, let me ask you this. Are you happy to be vague about these things? Your eternal destiny depends upon your answer to this question. Your spiritual standing matters. It should matter to you. It matters to God. It matters to the preacher. I was thinking recently about one of the former pastors of this church, going back to the Victorian times at the old Providence Chapel behind the Swan. In his unconverted days, he was known as Jack the Giant Killer. John Thornburg was a a great man, over six feet, enormous build, and he got in all sorts of scrapes and fights. But when God laid his hand upon him and converted him by his grace, he became a gentle giant, and he loved to preach the gospel. And as he did so, tears would run down his face as he was moved by the love of Christ and love for souls. Well, how do you feel about your soul? Have you ever been moved to tears out of concern for your soul, asking for forgiveness, asking for God's grace and salvation? In the year 1817, Princess Charlotte suddenly died. She was heir to the throne. She was just 21. She died in childbirth. And she was loved by the nation. People in a state of shock and grief. It's said that strong men will walk down the streets and burst into tears over this great national loss. And this is what moved William Gasby to write his well-known hymn, Pause My Soul, and ask the question, Art thou ready to meet God? 
Am I made a real Christian, washed in the Redeemer's blood? Have I union with the church's living head? Now, these are very telling questions, aren't they? How do you answer those questions? Now, there may be those of you, many perhaps, who are able to say, yes, I believe by the grace of God. I can see from the hallmarks of Scripture that I am a child of God. I'm a Christian. The Lord has worked a work of grace in my life. Now, the question is this, do other people know that? You may have the inward testimony, witness of the Spirit in your heart. It's a wonderful thing. But do other people know that? Have you testified to others that you are the Lord's? Have you been willing to take up your cross and follow Christ? To not only believe upon him in the heart, but with the mouth make confession unto salvation. That's what the Lord calls us to, isn't it? If we have experienced his mercy and grace. Don't try to hide your light under a bushel. Don't try to be a secret disciple. The Lord would have you come out boldly and openly to confess him before others. And those of you who as yet know nothing of the grace of God, you cannot honestly say you're a Christian. And perhaps you're not really concerned about it. I don't know. But let me ask you this. What is the minister going to say at your funeral? One of the saddest experiences for Christians is to go to a funeral and there's no evidence whatsoever that the person who died was a believer. There's a sense of sadness in our hearts we can't really put into words. So what is the minister going to say at your funeral? Don't say to yourself, that could be a long, long way away. We're all going to die sooner or later and it might be sooner rather than later. Remember these things and be wise. Acknowledge the Lord. Get on your knees and seek him. He is gracious to those who call upon him. He's promised to be found of those who look for him. Let me leave you with the words of Isaiah when he said, or the Lord speaking through Isaiah, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn unto the Lord, that he may have mercy upon him, and unto our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen.